All right, let's take out our Bibles. Join me, if you will, in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, I told you we would end up back here eventually. It has been a number of weeks since we left off in uh, this section of Matthew to look at some Christmas passages. But we're going to finish up Matthew 25 this week and be ready, of course, then to move on to the last three chapters of the book. Jesus is going to go to the cross for us. But what we have been giving our attention to is the Olivet Discourse in chapters 24 and 25. Of course, we call it the Olivet Discourse because he's presenting it on the Mount of Olives on Tuesday of the Passion Week uh, to his disciples, preparing them for the inter-Advent age. That is, Christ arrived in the first Advent. That's what we just celebrated at Christmas. And he was going to leave them after the resurrection and be gone physically from their presence for a time, an unspecified, uh, unspecified amount of time, and it's already turned out to be about 2,000 years, and he's preparing them for that intervening time before he returns again, time they didn't anticipate, they had no idea this was coming, and would have been quite shocked, I'm sure, to learn that it has been 2,000 years. He's preparing them for that, that it would be a time of great tribulation throughout it all, probably intensifying greatly at the end of the end, but it all would be characterized by suffering, tribulation in this world, and especially for his disciples. But it would also be a time of uh, triumphal proclamation of the gospel, that the gospel would be going forward even though it would be greatly opposed, that the church Jesus in Matthew 16 promised to build could not be destroyed, would not be stopped. It would be a time of triumph as the gospel goes to all the nations in in this world and in this intervening time remember they're to be watching and be ready because they don't know when he's going to return it could happen at any time that's the idea that we draw from these chapters they're to be watching they're to be ready they're to be prepared and they are to be faithfully serving him until he returns they're to view themselves as servants of Jesus, entrusted with, as the illustration he gave in the parable of the talents, with talents, that is a monetary unit of money that they were to invest for the kingdom. And when their master returned, they were going to give an account to him. They were going to present the talents that he had given to them, and then the more that they were to invest and see grow. We are to view ourselves then as his servants entrusted with responsibilities that he expects us to fulfill. And that brings us to the judgment scene of verses 31 to 46 that we've spent one week in, but it's been about four weeks ago. So let's read it again, verses 31 to 46, and we'll finish up this week. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne... Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared from you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. 
I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. These are the very words of God. Let's ask his blessing on them now. Father, will you please help us to see what we need to see this morning from this, well, in some ways sobering judgment scene. May your spirit uh, enable us to see and make changes in our lives where necessary and rejoice in Jesus and his righteousness on our behalf. I pray for your gifting now as we Acknowledge it comes from you, both the ability to teach and preach and the ability for all of us to understand. So we trust you to uh, guide us with your spirit now. In the name of Jesus, amen. We noticed when we looked at this just a number of weeks ago, the first thing we drew our attention to was the fact that this judgment, this inevitable judgment, uh, is a summons to the whole world. All the nations will be gathered before Jesus at judgment when he returns. It's very clear. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. By implication, that means everyone within them. What the Bible is clear about is that everybody will face judgment at the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we observe that He is the one to whom all judgment was committed. And the way God designed things, God is the judge. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they assign judgment uniquely to the Son incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one before whom everyone will stand and give an account. Notice from this passage, both believers and unbelievers are summoned before the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sheep and goats. The sheep representing, of course, true believers. The goats representing unbelievers. So everyone, all of us, one day will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. That is one way we are to be thinking about our lives here on this, in this world. That I need to be thinking thinking about what I do and how I do it and how I invest my time because one day 
I'm going to be standing before Jesus and I am going to have to give an account. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the way Paul lived was, he's thinking about that on a daily basis. And especially in the application in his ministry, he made it an aim to please the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal. Because one day he's going to stand before him. We had been prepared for this, of course, in the parable of the talents, where when this... uh, This man went on a journey. He called his servants and entrusted to them his property. And then when he returns, he he summons them to give an account of what they have done. We all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we made this critical observation that what we're seeing in this judgment scene is that in order to get into the kingdom, you have to go directly through Jesus. There's no way around this judgment throne, is there? You want into the kingdom, you go directly through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that is allowing access or banning it. We talk about old St. Peter at the pearly gates, but that's not necessarily true. It's the Lord Jesus Christ to whom we must stand before, who lets us in or denies us accent. Access, and that's why we say our relationship with Jesus as individuals, like where we stand with Him, is the most important aspect of our lives. There's nothing more important than this because, in the end, it is to Him we are summoned to give an account of our lives. But I want to make note of this in the beginning of the message so we don't lose track with the rest of it, okay? This very important point. When we talk about Christians standing in judgment before the Lord Jesus Christ, for true believers, understand this, there is no possibility of condemnation at that judgment. The word judgment and condemnation, very connected in the scriptures okay and so it's very important that we understand that though we will stand before jesus we will not be condemned if you're in christ and you can know you're in christ if you're in christ you will not be condemned in the end that what jesus has done for us is sufficient That even in our good works, like what we're going to learn in Matthew 25, loving the brothers and sisters in Christ through acts of compassion and mercy for those in need, even the least of those, those kind of works that Jesus calls us to, understand something. Those aren't works that are contributing to the verdict of you getting into the kingdom. Christ has done everything necessary, friends, for you to go into the kingdom. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. 
Why? Down in verse 3, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. In other words, the judgment on you was already passed. And we all failed. We're all under sin. We're all under condemnation. But what God has done marvelously and lovingly and graciously for us is that he took that condemnation and that judgment and laid it on his son on the cross. So as we're looking at Matthew 26, 27, we're seeing Jesus on that cross. You've got to think that is God's judgment for your sin being paid in its entirety so that you are free from that condemnation. John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, that is condemnation, but is passed from death to life. So we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We will give an account. But God is gracious to warn us about that so that when we're, once we're assured we're ready for the judgment, that is we're trusting in Christ and what he has done, then we can live our lives in such a way that when we stand before him, we'll hear from him those treasured words, right? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Prepared, ready, serving me in your life. Notice how Jesus hints at this security already so that we don't get the wrong idea, thinking this love for brothers and sisters in Christ is the way we're going to get into kingdom. He says that in verse 34. He says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. A fun little study for you would be to compare that phrase with Paul's writings in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be before him blameless and holy. I lost track at the end but you get the idea. These are what Jesus is saying isn't giving anybody the impression that They're getting into the kingdom because they did those things. The indication is a text for what we'll see in a minute. They're doing the things they're supposed to do because of what he has done for them and in them, in that that new heart. You know, the gospel itself from the very beginning is introduced to us as a gospel of done, not of what we must do. You caught notice of that? Right in the beginning, we celebrated this at Christmas. They named him Jesus and that mission summarized in his name. Uh, he will save his people from their sins. And uh, the rest of the book is about how he did that. And I, it was brought to my attention this week, you know, Buddha's final words, you know what Buddha's final words were? Strive unceasingly. This is advice to his disciples. Jesus' final words were, it is finished. I have done for them what they could not do for themselves. Now they have entrance into the kingdom. So I wanted to just kind of bring that out very clearly in the beginning because we all have the tendency to look at the commands of Scripture and we become legalistic in this sense that when we look at those commands, we think we've got to do this in order to gain our standing with God. We've got to do these things and keep these things in order to get into the kingdom. And we have to understand that we could not do that. All of your striving unceasingly isn't going to be enough to get you into the kingdom. None of us can stay consistent in the areas of discipleship. 
So we thank God that Jesus was consistent for us, okay? But we need to see these things, make adjustments in our lives, seeing how Jesus wants us to live in order to please Him, in order to glorify Him here in this life, and knowing that we're going to stand before our Savior and give an account. So that's a summons. But notice this. At this judgment, there will be eternal separation. At the judgment, people will be eternally separated. I don't know if you caught that. Look at verse 32 again. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But look down at verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The judgment, the judgment scene and standing before Christ, he will separate people and they will be separated forever. He gathers them together. He puts the sheep on the right hand. That's the symbolic place of honor. And they go into eternal life and joy and peace and love. But those on his left, the goats of Matthew chapter 25, they go into everlasting punishment. The stakes are high, right? And clearly the reader of Matthew's gospel that believes it is less saying, I want to be a sheep. I want to go into eternal life. And you remember what we talked about this? Jesus, he uses such graphic language in judgment. He pulls no punches. Remember, even up in these other passages in this, this Olivet Discourse, people were getting cut into pieces and cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. He pulls no punches about judgment and condemnation and how terrible it is. But we said that's such an expression of love. Coming from the one who created these places of judgment. So that you and I can read it and see the serious nature of it and turn from our sins and be forgiven in Him and trust in Him, you see. So gracious of God to warn us about judgment. The stakes are high. Whether you're a sheep or a goat determines not just where you spend eternity, but how. The condition of your eternity joy in the kingdom or eternal punishment. So I reiterate this. Friends, repent and trust in Jesus. It's the whole message of the Gospel of Matthew. It begins in the beginning with John the Baptist. Repent, man, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. Jesus came about preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn and trust in Him. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry with you. His wrath is quickly kindled. You need to turn to Him so that, and take refuge in Him. Blessed, Psalm 2. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. You take refuge in the judge Himself and then you will have nothing to fear in the judgment because He has cared for that for you. This is an eternal separation. 
And did you know, I don't know if you've ever noticed this in the Bible, but the Bible takes all human beings and lumps them into two categories. And you see it right here, don't you? You have sheep and goats. We live in a world that likes to take human beings and divide them up into every conceivable category and now we're making up more categories by which people can find their truest identity and we've got to keep adding to that. But the Bible makes it much simpler for us. You're a human being made in the image of God and you are either a human being in Adam or in Christ. You are either saved or lost. You're either a sheep or a goat. It's that simple. John in his letter breaks it down to this. They're children of God or they're children of the devil. It's, it's not something that's complicated to figure out one's identity. You're either in Christ or you're not. That's all that's going to matter in the judgment. They stand before Jesus and it doesn't come up what the color of their skin is or their native language or their, their family of origin or the size of their bank account or their IQ. None of that matters. They're sheep and they are goats. They are saved or they are lost. They're on their way into the kingdom or on their way to eternal punishment. Which are you? Where do you find your truest source of identity in such a confusing world? Is your identity in Christ? Are you a child of God? That's the only thing that ultimately and eternally has significance for you. And then notice the standard for entrance into the kingdom. Let's read those verses again, and I want to draw a couple of points from this. Verse 35, first of all. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? Notice this. Or, and when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers... You did it to me. Now there are some that interpret this passage and they say, here's what Jesus is teaching his disciples. They need to care about the poor and the needy in this world. They need to to show compassion and mercy and love to those in need and to those who are suffering. And to part of that I would agree. I would say certainly Jesus would want us to do that. Certainly Jesus wants us to care for the poor and the needy to indiscriminately show love to people and concern for those who are downcast and those who are outcasts and to those who need help and mercy no matter what. We we show them compassion. But I don't think that's what he's driving at here. It's not the point he's trying to make. The key to understanding this passage, I think, is in that phrase Jesus uses in verse 40, my brothers... I say to you, as you did it, one of these acts of mercy and kindness, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, and that could be translated my brothers and sisters, so it's not just for men, you did it to me. Who does Jesus mean when he says my brothers? 
Who's he referring to? Well, he's already answered that in Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. I think I have a slide for that. Matthew 12, verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. <clears throat> of course, it's referring there to, uh, to Mary and, uh, and his uh, half-brothers. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And notice this. Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. So he's already told us who his brothers are. His brothers are his disciples, his followers, the people of God, the church, the body of Christ, the sheep in the fold of the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus. In other words, what he's teaching here is that true disciples of Jesus will demonstrate love and care and mercy toward other disciples of Jesus. That's a way you're going to know they're true disciples of Jesus. That's a way you're going to know they're in their way to the kingdom, is that they're serving the people of Jesus Christ in their time of need. When they're suffering, the church is responding around them, providing what they need. It's a demonstration of who they are. And as they're doing this, what Jesus is saying, as you're ministering even to the least of these, my disciples, as you're doing these acts of service and kindness to them, you're doing it to me. I mean, capture that and don't miss it. Jesus has such an intimate union and mysterious union with his people, even the least of these, his brothers, People with you, you've never heard of, right? Nameless Christians who never wrote a book and don't have a podcast and nobody knows their name and they're not invited to any big conferences. The least of these, my brothers. I'm so connected with them that what happens to them happens to me. When they're being served, I'm being served. When they're not being served, I'm not being served. That's a mysterious union, isn't it? But one that's quite, ide- quite encouraging when you're one of Jesus' disciples. That's how closely he identifies with you. Remember when Saul of Tarsus is persecuting the church and he's on his way to Damascus to really let the Christians have it. The resurrected Jesus appears to him on that road and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And keep in mind, Jesus had been ascended into heaven for quite a time at that point. What happens to the church happens to Jesus. What doesn't happen to the church doesn't happen to Jesus. That's the idea. You know, Paul will talk about this in Ephesians 5 in marriage, and we usually look at it at the context of, of marriage, which we should. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ, love the church, gave himself up for her. And he said, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just like Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. How closely related are you to your hand? Or your foot. You can't separate you from your body. That's the way it is with Christ. 
That's how important you are to him. That's how special you are to him. And what we learn in this passage is that one of the ways that Jesus nourishes and cares for his body is through his body. So as the body is ministering to the body, as the body is encouraging the body and helping the body, you see, it's Jesus doing that through them. What a profound thought. It's really ministry changing, isn't it? It's kind of a paradigm by which we view the different services that we do for the body of Christ. That we're doing this for Jesus. That He notices it. That He remembers it. This, of course, as I said, is delivered on Tuesday of Passion Week. And on that Thursday evening, Jesus is going to take His disciples into the upper room to observe the Passover. And after washing their feet. He sits down and he says to them, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I think what he's doing here on Tuesday in Matthew 25, is describing a way that love looks. That it's, about, it's a love that is caring for other people in their times of need in suffering. Remember he started this whole Olivet Discourse by explaining that in this age you're going to have tribulation. You're going to suffer and disciples are going to suffer uniquely. And I think what he's saying here and driving on the point in this inner Advent age is we all walk through a world filled with suffering. We all have to suffer and others are called to suffering around us. The test of the true disciple is that he's reaching out and ministering to others in that time of suffering. The body is to be caring for itself. And when we minister to other people, we're ministering to Jesus himself because of that union that he has with us. And you'll notice how surprised they were in verse 37 to hear this. When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? There's there's surprise in this response which indicates to us they were doing it naturally. They were doing it unconsciously. It was like naturally just The body's in need, I serve. Somebody's sick, I I visit. Somebody's in prison, I get it. Somebody needs daily necessities, I I provide it. This is what I do. They're not thinking, okay, I gotta do this now and then I can get into the kingdom. I can do this now for the points that I'll receive. It's this natural working of the supernatural inworking of God in a heart. This is the evidence that one has been born again into the family of God. Can I just take a minute to show you something? Turn to 1 John. I think John brings this truth out so clearly. 1 John chapter 3, first of all, that's on page 1303 if you're using one of our Bibles here. Oh, thank you, Calista. Verse 
Let's begin in verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Now remember two things. First of all, 1 John, just very quickly, John is writing to you so that you can know you have eternal life. So his goal is assurance. Okay? That's in chapter 5. But his goal is assurance to you that you can know you're in Christ. And remember what we said back in Matthew 25 about two categories of people. And the true disciples, there will be evidence in their life of true discipleship. Listen to what he says. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So if their life then is characterized by unrepentant unrighteousness, it's an indication that they're not a child of God. Now, all of us never perfectly practice righteousness. We fail all the time. We all stumble, as James said, in many ways. But a lifestyle of unrepentance and characterized just by open and blatant sinfulness is one in which, and think of, we're not judged, so I don't, we can't judge the person eternally. That's committed to Jesus. But we see it and we say, like John, I don't see evidence that this person is a child of God. But he goes on, listen, <clears throat> nor is the one who does not love his brother. Who are the brothers? The brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ, the disciples. That's who he's talking about. I'm supposed to love my brother Wade, but it's not the same. It is the same because he's a Christian too. Well, so anyway, this illustration falls short, but the, you get the idea. All right? It's a unique spiritual inborn love from the children of God. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. It's what Jesus is teaching us in the judgment scene of the sheep and goats. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Jesus taught us it would, right? We know that we have passed out of death unto life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, by this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You see his point? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. He reiterates it in chapter 4. Look at this in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not go, uh, know God because God is love. In other words, when you've been born into the family of God, you get that new heart that you love your siblings in that family. And true love is not just spoken, it's demonstrated in the acts of mercy and kindness that Jesus display or talks about back in Matthew chapter 25 and in that judgment. That's the love demonstrated, the care that he wants to see among his disciples. They were surprised by it because it was just a, a natural outworking of the supernatural inworking that God had created in them, that they had been born again and born from God. And one of the ways they knew they were born from God is because they now loved the brothers. You see, friends, you can't have Jesus and not the church. 
You can't serve Jesus and not the church because the way you serve Jesus is through the church. That's what he's teaching. When you serve the people of God, you're serving me. This is how we know, friends, that we have been born again. One of the ways that John is helping people know, I know I have eternal life because God changed my heart and I have love, care, concern, and compassion for the people of God. That if you were living long enough before God saved you, you didn't have before. I can remember times in my life, I would have done anything to not be around Christian people. I had no desire to be around Christian people or to worship them or frankly cared what happened to any of them. But then I was born again and that changed. That's the idea. And one more thing, back in Matthew chapter 25 As we just bring this to a conclusion, notice the simplicity in this kind of love. Notice the simplicity in this kind of love in verses 35 and 36. Giving somebody who's hungry food. The idea, I think, behind this is they're in need and you provide it. They're thirsty, you give them drink. Look at the simplicity of this. They're a stranger and you welcomed them. Do you need a particular gifting to walk up to a visitor in our church and in the name of Jesus greet them? Or is that pretty simple to do? Now, I know it's hard for some of you to do because of personalities, but it's not complicated. It's very simple. But I'll tell you what, think about that next time. When you go greet a believer at our church... You go greet somebody that you don't even know and you walk up to them, make them feel welcome at a church they've never been to and it's always awkward to do that and you go up and say hi to them. You're doing that to Jesus. And whether they're appreciative of it or not, they probably will be, but whether they were or not, Jesus is appreciative. When you visit someone who is is sick, or those in prison, presumably in this case, either A, for... Um, being persecuted as believers or become believers in prison. You're doing all of these things to Jesus. None of these things take a special talent. They don't need a program. You don't need permission from the elders. Just do it. Just look for need and find it. When you hear of need, fill it. That's the type of thing that Jesus is telling us to do. That would demonstrate true discipleship and it would bring glory to him. It's the way the world's going to know that we're his disciples is by that kind of love that's demonstrated for one another. And I'll just close with this encouragement to the church personally. I have seen this church over 10 years minister to people in need. I have seen love demonstrated in acts of kindness and mercy. I've seen the church grow in this. I've seen uh, so much of it. So be encouraged in that. And as Paul prayed in Philippians 1, I pray that your love would abound more and more. I actually get to the point where we're just known for the care we have for one another. And friends, when we fail to love well, and we all do, Let's praise Jesus for his perfect love toward us. As we watch him in Matthew 27, 26, 27, head to the cross for us, demonstrating that perfect love, laying down his life for 
us. Let's praise him for that. Now his teaching about love and mercy and grace and faithfulness is all done. And what we'll see him do now is demonstrate for us love and mercy and grace and faithfulness by going to the cross for us. Greater love hath no man than this than he lay down his life for his friends so that you and I, friends, can hear from him one day. Come you who are blessed by my Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Father, as always, we just thank you for Jesus. And we pray for a working of your spirit in our hearts, even today, that we would become more like him, representing him well as his brothers and sisters in this world. Help us to be a church and individuals who care for hurting people. We will help us to weep with those who weep and to rally around those who are suffering. I ask this in his name. Amen.